This is Bishop Michael Curry, and you're listening to The Way of Love. Welcome to The Way of Love podcast with Bishop Michael Curry, a podcast from the Episcopal Church about following Jesus and changing the world. I'm your host, Sandy Millian. Throughout this season, we'll bring you a lot more of Bishop Curry's conversations with faith leaders, authors, and thinkers who are committed to following the way of Jesus in the world today. Framed by the way of love, those seven practices of turning, learning, praying, worshiping, blessing, going, and resting. We'll hear stories and lessons about how each of us can grow closer to God in our daily lives. I'm very suspicious of virtue peddling, but um, I've been trying to pay attention to how does it feel in my body when I'm in a space of compassion towards somebody, and how does it feel in my body when I lack compassion for somebody? In this episode, Bishop Curry sits down with Reverend Nadia Bowles-Weber, a Lutheran pastor, author, and speaker from Denver, Colorado. They discuss how sharing our stories with bravery and honesty through the ministry of Going First can help us cross the boundaries of loneliness and inequality towards community, teaching us to go in a time of intensifying hurt, injustice, and division in our world. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Curry, your presiding bishop, and it is a real joy and and a real privilege uh, to have the Reverend Nadia Bolt-Weber with us today. Nadia, thank you for being with us. Oh my gosh, it's a thrill. I'm so excited to talk to you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you are like one of the busiest Christians on earth outside of the Pope, I expect. Oh no, you know, I like people to think that, but um <laughs> but but honestly, like I watch a lot of West Wing episodes during the week. I uh uh-huh. like I have <laughs> I have I have a I have a more underscheduled life than people would suspect, but I do like people to think I'm super busy. Oh, I do but, that too. I, yeah, I yeah. post pictures of myself in places and let everybody <laughs> think I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, but thank you. Cause I know, I do know how busy you are. You preach and you speak and teach and, um, your, your ministry is a, it's just a remarkable one that makes Uh-oh. a difference. Oh, thanks. I'm having uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> there, and I got to tell you, there I, I doubt that there are very many people who don't know a lot about you, but just for the sake of the few who don't know you, sure. um, tell us a little bit about you, your life, and, and your ministry as it has evolved, and then we'll get into the contemporary world. Yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, I was raised in a really sort of uh, Christian fundamentalist family. Uh, I was raised in the Church of Christ, which I describe as being like Baptist plus and um, very, I mean, so conservative that like women weren't really allowed to pray out loud in front of men. Like I never heard a woman's voice in a Christian worship service till I was 27 years old. And, um, and but also being raised as a church kid, there's a beautiful part of that, which is like we were at, we were in our church three times a week and people were in our home all the time. I mean, people, we had devotionals there and people shared meals at our house. And so I got to be raised in a, in a, in a pretty tight knit community, which is beautiful. And, uh, but the theology was pretty problematic. So, um, you know, I had I had a lot of um, health problems when I was a kid and had to 
just experienced lots of alienation because of having um, a disease that was kind of disfiguring that couldn't be fixed until I was uh, older. And so uh, just that alienation and then also just being a sort of smart girl who had natural, who was a natural leader, that was very difficult in that church. And so by the time I left the church, I ended up um, also having a bit of a drug and alcohol problem. And so, um, it just lit, led a, a pretty colorful life, uh, for a number of years. And then I got clean and sober. Um, I got clean and sober in December of 1991. And it took me a long time to kind of piece a life back together. You know, it's funny because yeah. by the time I went to seminary, people called me a second career pastor because I was like, well, I was in my late thirties and which implied I had a first career that I thought, and I thought, well, that's adorable, but no, oh. I did not have a first career. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've got a life, but that, I wouldn't call it a career, I suppose. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. definitely not a career. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so then I, I spent 10 years outside of Christianity and just really, um, did you really, I okay. couldn't, I, I, I just couldn't have any, I just had no stomach for it. Bishop, I just couldn't, um, all I knew was the kind of Christianity I was raised in. And I got really involved in some pretty radical politics at that point. I was involved in like the Colorado coalition against English only. And I was getting arrested at protests and there was, you know, I went to Cuba and just all this stuff. And, and I thought, you know, the church doesn't ever have anything to say about issues of justice. And so, um, and then, I met my my now ex-husband, who's um just a, a lovely human being, but I'd I'd never met a Christian who cared about um who cared about issues of of justice. And so he was um in seminary to be a Lutheran pastor and he introduced me to the Lutheran church and I when he told me like his heart for social justice was rooted in his Christian faith, I looked at him uh -huh. like, what are you like a unicorn? Right. Like How do you do this? Right? Mythical <laughs> combination of creatures that doesn't exist in reality. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but slowly I, I fell in love with the Lutheran church specifically because it gave me language for what I'd already experienced to be true in my life rather than being a set of beliefs I had to adopt or, you know, pretend to believe it. It, it just like when they, when when I learned in the Lutheran Church that everyone's simultaneously sinner and saint, like 100% of both at the same right. time, I thought, well, thank you. Like that just explains so much. And I, exactly. <laughs> and then that I makes found, a lot of sense. It does. And I fell in love with the liturgy and the sacraments. And, mm. I, and so... Um, and, and the fact that Lutheran theology is so centered in grace and... I had experienced grace. Like I didn't pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps when I got sober. Like that was God interrupting my life in a way. And so, um, and so then I, I, but I would look around the Lutheran church and as much as I loved the theology and the sacramental worship, no one looked like me. I mean, my friends are not going to those churches and and I thought, um, and so I, I sort of poured a decade of my life into starting a church that, um, that was centered in grace and the sacraments, but that I didn't have to culturally commute to show up to, and neither did other people. So I started House for All Sinners and Saints in 2008. Right. And, um, 
and it's uh, it is flourishing without me. I am happy to say yeah. I left <laughs> a year yeah. and a half ago, and uh, a, a, an amazing Episcopal priest uh, is in charge, Reagan Umper, um, who I trust like with my whole heart. I mean, he oh. is um, priest and everything I've heard that's gone on since I left, every decision he's made, everything they've tried new, I, my response has been like, oh, that's amazing. Wow. Oh. <laughs> so oh. they're doing well without me, which I'm very proud of. I planted a polished water and God gave the growth. Uh-huh. For that's sure. It. For sure. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even, yeah. I knew, I knew that you had left and we're kind of doing another thing now mm-hmm. or not another thing, taking mm-hmm. a new step in the journey. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't know there was an Episcopal priest where you were though. Well, why do you think it's being run so well? <laughs> of course. Oh, thank you for this commercial. <laughs> this commercial is brought to you by the Episcopal church. Thank you. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It's always, wow. it's always been a blend. I mean, I actually, I do probably more speaking and preaching in Episcopal context than a Lutheran one. I mean, I'm like, I consider myself theologically Lutheran, but I, I, but culturally and liturgically, I'm, I'm probably more aligned with the Episcopal church for sure. So. Well, and we all kind of mix and merge now mm-hmm. these days, I suspect. <laughs> well, tell us about what you're doing now. I'm in just a really unusual position. I don't know other mainline Protestant pastors who've had my career path, but um, for some reason, the zeitgeist and what I'm throwing out there seem to be aligning, meaning, um, you know, I've, it's unusual for a, like a parish pastor to write New York Times bestselling books. <laughs> I mean, to have that much public interest in what I'm saying, people being sort of hungry for what I'm laying down. And all I'm trying to do in a way is to, you know, as we say, preach the gospel, but um, to do it outside of religious context a lot. So Mm -hmm. I speak at yoga festivals and wellness conferences and feminist gatherings and thought leader gatherings and and peop- I, I end up being a pastoral voice and a pastoral yes. presence in spaces that are not convened by the church necessarily. Yes. You turned into a worldly pastor. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I mean, but yeah. I didn't really mean for any of it to happen, if I'm honest. Like, my whole public career is a series of people being like, hey, you should do this. And me going, oh, okay. Like I didn't vision board it. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't get together with my girlfriends on the first day of the year and be like, well, I think I want to write books and I want to try. Like yes. none of it. It just, it just kind of happened. And so now my focus is I have a, <clears throat> I have a um, podcast I'm working on that I can't, I'm, I'm, I can't, tell you too much about but but it's called the con- the confessional and it's sort of bringing that idea of what do we do with our stories of failure and mistakes and mm-hmm. regret and can someone maybe exchange those for a blessing yes um and that's my sort of like trying to bring this th- because the thing i'm very interested in is like look human beings have always been religious throughout history right i mean ev- religion fashions itself in endless variety and Hume and the enlightenment didn't take away the needs that religion have has always met in humans. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I'm interested in like, what are the needs that religion has always met that are kind of going unmet in people now because uh, we live in a secular age and not everybody is going to do that cultural commute to show up to a church. And so um, I think one of those things is like, where do people receive a blessing? Yes. I'm very interested in that. Where do people, you know, if you're not in a 12 step program, where do you confess your brokenness? You know, where, mm-hmm. anyway, so these are the things I've been thinking about a lot and sort of, and, and working on. You know, what's striking to me, hmm. you've been talking about this very personally. I mean, you're not talking hmm. about it professionally. You're not oh, yeah. separating that. I mean, it's it's like what do that's people all need? I have, that's all I have to offer. <laughs> I mean, when I yeah. was in my parish, my my congregants were like, "We're so glad we have a preacher who's clearly preaching to herself and letting us overhear it." Yes, yes. So, it um, it was you were just doing it. I was. Yeah. You may be bringing an end to New Year's resolutions. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> well, the, the, the great resolution might just be to just follow the wind of the spirit. Oh yeah. I, I, um, I'm very suspicious of human improvement projects. Um, just because I don't know, I don't believe in progressive sanctification as we, you know, some traditions say like you just, you just strive and strive and improve and improve and through your efforts and through your focus, you can get there. And I'm like, I don't know. It's just never worked for me. Like usually I, when I'm distracted by that kind of thing, there's something completely different in my life that's changing. It's never the thing I'm trying to change, you know? So I think, I think we, we do grow in wisdom Mm -hmm. for sure, Mm -hmm. hopefully, Mm -hmm. but um, do we ever become not sinner and saint? No, I think we don't change the percentage. We're a hundred percent of both all the time. So you can't, you can't sort of strive to become 80, 20, I don't. Right. And I think when we think that we're telling ourselves the wrong story entirely. I mean, all I have mm. is the fact that I, I struggle and um, and then I mm-hmm. just try and talk about that and people tend to relate. It's it's not it's not PR, you know, it's not a strategy. It's it's literally I have a hard time. Like, so I started this online publication and community called The Corners. Uh-huh. And and I wrote an essay yesterday about compassion. And um, and the reason I wrote about it is it's not my go to thing, <laughs> you know, like it, it's the thing I struggle with. And I was writing about like, I'm really interested in compassion, but not as a virtue, not like I, I'm very suspicious of virtue peddling. But uh-huh. um, I've been trying to pay attention to how does it feel in my body when I'm in a space of compassion towards somebody and how does it feel in my body when I lack compassion for somebody and how it's like, it doesn't have to do with, are they worthy of being of someone feeling compassion for them? That's not the question. The question is, can my spirit handle my response to everything being F you all the time? So it's just better for me. It, and it has nothing to do with the worthiness on the other side, if that makes sense. It's almost your response, whether anybody else knows it or not, internally. That's yes. the key. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's all I've ever really had to offer is just I sort of don't mind pulling back the curtain and and being really honest about things that are hard for me or what Uh things really feel like. And I think people see that as it, it, I think people receive that as an invitation for them to do the same. It's a form of leadership I've always called, screw it, I'll go first. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. just, <laughs> that's, I a, just, that's a great book title, Screw It, I'll Go First. <laughs> Nadia Boltweb, yes, yes, here we go. <laughs> yeah, because, because what happens when I do that is I think it does create a space around me for yeah. others to admit similar things for themselves, you know? So, so, so you really are taking the veil off the illusion that we're all omnicompetent. Oh, Lord, that's all I have to offer. You know, I was at the Greenbelt Festival last summer, and <laughs> I was in the sort of tent that's the green room for all the folks. And uh-huh. I had been on the main stage, and then after me was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh-huh. And so I, I wave at him when his talk is over, and he comes over, and I'm sitting on a cushion, on these like cushions in the corner. Uh-huh. And he takes his shoes off, sits on a pillow next to me, and yeah. proceeds to just kind of confess these things that he's yeah. struggling with in terms of his reactions to other people. And, oh, yeah. And, and then we just laughed our asses off for yes. like 10 minutes. <laughs> and, and I thought, it's, it doesn't matter if it's the Archbishop of Canterbury no, or one of my parishioners or some, you know, non-religious person at a yoga festival. I, I have just one thing to offer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, it's, it's almost like the, the little kid in the old story who says the emperor has no clothes. And yeah. if the emperor would just realize that, they say, hey, I'm naked. It's okay. And so is everybody else. That's right. right? The, the little boy would not have a publishing contract. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, how do you nurture that in yourself? Uh, it doesn't really take nurturing. I, I, I don't huh. it's just I, it. There's no it's just who I am. And and part of it comes from, you know, honestly, I, I just want to feel less alone. And yeah. um, I feel less alone when somebody tells me something horrible about themselves. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's nice to be sort of, you know, um, dazzled by someone's virtues and their accomplishments and whatever. That's fine. But it it never makes me feel less alone. Um, It it might be just, you know, I've been in the rooms of of, uh, 12-step programs Mm -hmm. for 28 years, and, and that's where that healing comes from. Um, in those spaces and kind of going like, I can't do this. And I just have to trust there's a power that's greater than me that can. Mm-hmm. And that other people have been on this path and to listen to what they say and to clean up my messes. And, you know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. Just, mm-hmm. you know, Richard Rohr calls the 12 steps America's single yet very important contribution to human spirituality. Yes. I, I was going to ask you, but I think you've already answered it, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Where is your community or how does it emerge? I put a very high premium on my friendships and I spend mm-hmm. um, I spend time almost every day of my life um, on the phone with uh, friends of mine who, live, mm-hmm. who are sort of scattered about. Um, I, there's a group of of uh, women and one gay Chinese guy. Uh, it's it's a very diverse group of, of friends that have just sort of committed to be for each other uh, and to love each other. And so I just, I lean into that a lot. Um, but 
I struggle like a lot of people do going, I don't, I don't have a church right now. Um, I preach at the women's prison and I preach at the cathedral here whenever I can. So I'm in a pulpit, you know, once a month, but, uh, but having my, uh, it's hard to, to sort of find my own community. And I don't know where do 50 year old women make new friends? Like, I don't know how that happens. And uh, so I do, I am a little isolated um, with the exception of, of having a very loving partner who I'm devoted to. Um, I, I, I'm, I am kind of isolated. Yeah. But you know, I mean, what, what is amazing to me is no pun intended. You're not actually alone. A lot of us are. Yeah. Yeah. I got a funny feeling. A lot of us are. Yeah. You're talking to a whole lot of us right now. I know it's, um, and I think being raised in the church in the way I was with that community. Yeah. There's been part of me that's just always tried to recreate a version of that in my life. And sometimes mm-hmm. I've been able to do that and sometimes I haven't. But but once you know what it's like to be in community, it's very lonely when you're not. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Do you talk to yourself? What do you mean? Do you have inner conversations? Oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> there is, I'm not being a shrink uh, now. I'm, there I mean, is literally, uh, my partner has a sound for it. Uh-huh. <laughs> he's me doing it. Like I'm always, always, always thinking and mulling things about and talking to myself. And so he he will make a sound when he knows this is happening. He said he can <laughs> actually hear it. <laughs> oh, he's good. Oh, that's good. That's a good partner. Because <laughs> yeah. I got a feeling part of your community is yourself. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of it like that, but, um, and I think just being comfortable in my own skin. Yeah. Um, it, boy, I wouldn't be in my twenties again for all the money in the world, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Being relaxing into yourself and just being um, comfortable with who you are and knowing who you are. And not needing other people to reflect it to you constantly is um, a joy of being wow. a little older. You know? The old song says, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. That's right. That is, yeah. It is freedom. Take a moment and think of a time when someone's willingness to go first in sharing their story has helped you feel less alone. What was it about that experience that created community or freedom for you? Stay with us for the second half of Bishop Curry's conversation with Nadia Bowles-Weber, following this message from our sponsor. You your books and and now talking to you, you speak in a deeply intimate way about yourself publicly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's remarkable. I mean, that is a gift. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. That's a huge gift. And you've done it, um, I mean, in books. And, I mean, you do that. How come you're not afraid to do that? Well, I... Is it just the way you are? I think it's just the way I am. I mean... But also, it, the more I do it, the more introverted I become. So, um, like anybody who's seen me speak, I I am 
my anxiety will just tick up every second until I'm in my hotel room by myself again after I've spoken because I'm just, I just feel like a, an exposed nerve, you know? So I'm not one of these, well, I'm happy to do that and hopefully it's useful for people. What I can't do is I cannot process people's uh, feelings about what I just did with them. I can't receive their stories. I can't hold their wounds. Like I, it, it's, I've given everything I have. And so actually Richard Rohr <laughs> taught me this. He's such a lovely man, but he said, Nadia, um, he goes, you need to listen to me for a second. And I go, okay. And he goes, when you're done speaking and at, when you're signing books, somebody needs to be holding your purse, all your possessions and a set of car keys. And it's, and they need to pay attention oh. to when the line is down because as soon as you have signed the last book, they have to get you out the door. He goes, uh-huh. because there will be people lurking around the edges of that room waiting until you don't have any excuse to not pay exclusive attention to them. They are yes. the least healthy people in the room. Yes. And if you want to keep doing this public work, you have to avoid them. Wow. Yeah. Now that's he is harsh, such a right? wise person. Yes, it's hard is. to do. But he is I so know, wise. but see what that does mm. is that then what that does is it gnaws at this idea I like to have of myself that I'm compassionate or that I right. care about people, right? And so my sister is one of the wisest people I've ever met, my older sister. Mm-hmm. And she, at one point in my life, I was stretching myself very thin in a way that was not healthy to uh-huh. try to care for this friend of mine. And she said, Nadia, you have a limited amount of emotional energy and time in your life. You are squandering so much of it on this one person so that Mm. you can maintain the idea that you like to have of yourself, that you're a good friend. Yes. Like, think about that. Like, how much effort do we put in our lives to maintain an idea we like to have of ourselves, even if it's costing us and other people deeply, or even our churches. Like when churches start new programming, Mm -hmm. um, I always want to ask them, tell me about, like, honestly, what's the thing under the thing? Is it that you're seeing a need and meeting it? Or is it, hey, if this program uh, goes off, it'll Mm -hmm. say something about us that we like to be said. What need is really being met? What's Correct. really? That's right. Yeah. yeah. I've got to ask you, this is related to what we've been talking about, but it's, it's different. I mean, you, your, your most recent book is about the gift of human sexuality. Yeah. I mean, God's yeah. gift of the, some of the deepest sides of us. And I'm wondering, one, what, what some of the reaction to the book has been, what that's yeah. been like for you, and just what's been some of the reaction, good, the bad, and the ugly? Well, Again, I have to choose who who I listen to. And mm-hmm. so that book was written for people, for a very specific group of people, which had mm-hmm. been people who had received harmful messages from the church mm-hmm. about sex and sexuality and bodies and gender <clears throat> and hoping to free them from that a bit. So mm-hmm. if people read the book and that is not their story, and they are not wanting to step into more freedom, then Mm -hmm. whatever they say about the book doesn't matter to me because it's not for them. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, and so I had to kind of go tune out a lot of stuff. So I don't read reviews of my books, to be honest. And, um, but I got lots of messages from 
people who were so grateful, who were like, I feel like you wrote this just for me. Uh I feel like I'm stepping into some freedom. I'm letting go of some old messages. And so in that way, to me, it was hugely successful. Um, Even though it was not like my best selling book, it was a book that did did really good work in the lives of the people for whom I wrote it. Have you reflected much? And and this is a little bit different. I'm not this is not a gotcha question. Mm on us in the body politic, and I don't mean partisan politics now, mm-hmm. but on what's going on with us as a culture. Ooh, well, you're asking me. <laughs> and I'm not trying to get you in trouble. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm, no, I'm I mean, asking the deeper question. <laughs> it's hard for me to think of it as being anything else but powers and principalities hmm. because um, I'm just going to be honest. I think um, our country, we never had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission <laughs> Yeah. There, there, there are, there was no repentance of our original sins as a yes. country. And I think that there is a darkness, a spiritual powers and principalities at work that we have to reckon with. And that is what we see now as a result of that, uh, that we have never done our work as yes. a country. And, um, you know, I, I, my books have been, uh, translated into a lot of languages. And so I end up in other countries sometimes supporting the different translations of the books. And, um, and when you're in Europe and other sort of what we call Western developed countries and you're an American, eventually they're like that you get the questions you sure do. and what yeah. the questions are is they're like, Oh my gosh, we got an American ask her, ask her. And the questions are, Hey, our cultures have a lot in common, but there's some things that are just very confusing to us here in Europe. So like, um, yep. could you help us with just a few things? And mm-hmm. there are three things. And those three things are gun laws, mm-hmm. mass incarceration, and the mm-hmm. death penalty. Yeah. And I go, there's no way for me to help you understand this unless you can, unless you're willing to talk about white supremacy because uh, all three of these things are spiritually a result of the origins of our country and our original sins never having been dealt with. All yeah. three of them are. And yes. they will not change unless we go and do that hard work. Yes. So yeah. if you're wondering why don't yeah. those things change, it's because we haven't done that work. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. So, yeah. I and and I wish I knew. I don't know what the sort of solution is to it, but I and I don't know what that work is going to look like necessarily. But I know mm-hmm. we're having conversations now we weren't having three or four years ago. Right. Um, well, on one level, we're actually talking about it. That's right. I mean, and <clears throat> that's right. And everybody's not turning it off. That's it's right. like we all know something's wrong. That's right. And it's not just about mm-hmm. whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or an independent. There's something yeah. deeper. And we, that, that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. And and back to the thing about that I'm interested in in terms of compassion. I mean, mm-hmm. I have a lot of anger and rage about things, and I think that there's a lot of things to be angry about, mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and that that is that anger is justified. However, I just know for myself that when somebody else has been in a place of compassion towards me, um, it softens everything around me enough that 
um, that conversation can move the needle inside of me, meaning uh. I am able to look at things when somebody says them having compassion for me that I can't when they're accusing me, when they're yelling at me, when they're mm. pointing a finger at me, when they're call, you know, um, then I shut down. I get defensive. I'm like, you're wrong. I, I can't hear it. I can't hear anything. And there's a lot of that right now. There's just so yes. much yelling. There's so much accusation. There's so much finger pointing. There's so much yeah. canceling. People make a mistake. They say one thing wrong. They're taken out like trash. You're mm -hmm. canceled. All of that. And I'm like, I get the anger behind, trust me, I get the anger behind that as much as I can as a, as a 50-year-old white woman. But I think if there are spaces that people have the ability to have these conversations with compassion for the people that we let them start where they're starting and we have compassion for their starting place. I think that it's much more likely to bring them along a little bit. If we go look, because look after Trayvon Martin, like everything shifted for me. And I, I thought I knew shit and I didn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I thought I knew things and I thought, oh, I'm liberal and I have, you know, I have a certain analysis and I didn't know what I didn't know. And when the George Zimmerman verdict was being read, I thought I want to be, I went to shorter AME because they were watching the verdict together. And I sat in this black church and I just listened to everyone's reactions and I realized I never in a million years would think to warn my teenage son when he was learning to drive, oh. telling him how he had to behave so that he didn't get shot by a cop if he was pulled over. Never would have dawned on me. Sure. And, and so, you know, I am a beginner with so much of this stuff. Mm. And I try to have some compassion for myself and I try and not overshoot. A lot of times when you're a beginner with something and you have shame about that, you tend to want to call anybody out who's a little bit farther behind than you are. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's, a, it's a good psychological maneuver. <laughs> it is. But it's so not it's healthy, right. but it works. <laughs> That's right. So I mean, I am. How do we not compromise the truth of this stuff that is that is so deeply, deeply rooted in human sinfulness. And, and like Martin Luther said, a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. Yes. How do we call a yes. thing what it is, truthfully, and have compassion for our fellows as we bring each other along in this process? Um, you know, I was just sitting here thinking, you really are, have become... And, and I know you're, it's bigger than America, but you have become a pastor to the soul of America. Yeah, yeah. You really are. Just listening to you, just, I mean, reading you over the years and yeah. listening to you, and you really are. But every pastor's got to have, um, um, not a vice, but, but something that they enjoy that... I mean, I, I will make this public confession um, if, if you'll be my confessor for a moment. Oh, are you kidding? It's all I'm, I've ever wanted. Oh, I know. I know you've been waiting for this moment for, for years. This is, what do you got? Yeah. What do you got? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm a, um, I, I was born in Chicago and, um, you know, spent all my summers in North Carolina, grandmas, and our winters in Buffalo where, where I grew up. 
And growing up in Buffalo, I became a Buffalo Bills fan back when I was a young kid. Mm. And I've been a lifelong Buffalo Bills fan. And I root <laughs> for the Bills. Every I've been rooting for them so long that I now consider myself an NFL grief counselor for those who are going through all the stages of grief. Um, but that's what I do in my spare time. I watch the Buffalo Bills in the old days lose. Um, now they're beginning to win a little bit. Do you watch the Buffalo Bills or do what do you I, I, do for no, fun? I've, I've never <laughs> watched sports, um, but I watch a lot. And when I say a lot, I mean, I watch a lot of television. <laughs> So, NASCAR? NASCAR? No, 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 no like okay. I, right. wish, I wish it was something like that, but um, <laughs> I, yeah, I watch a lot of um, Netflix and HBO and um, I, I, I will watch something and then watch the whole series again with Eric. So what, what um, public events have you done lately that were really fun? Well, I've, I'm on a break. And so um, I, that's I, fun. <laughs> I was on 90 airplanes last year in seven countries. I flew 125,000 miles. Yeah. So I've been on a break and been writing and and working on these projects. But but my last public gig was the Moth. Um, I did the Moth main stage in New Orleans Uh in December. And the Moth is actually... um, you know, one of the people who I'm working with right now for the projects I'm working on. So, uh, yeah, it's a story, live storytelling events that are so beautiful because people just tell real stories from their lives with heart and humility and honesty. And and people feel less alone, you know, because people are speaking honestly about their lives. This is the thing about being in in the in the rooms of 12 step programs for so much of my life is like I just it, it can feel like people are speaking honestly about their lives and connecting to God and to one another more frequently in church basements than in church sanctuaries. Yes. Keeping it real. Yeah. Well, you keep it real sister. You really (laughs) do. Oh man. Do you ever, I got to ask you one last thing. And it's, 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 I mean, the folk who listen to this podcast are dear and wonderful folk. And a lot of them listen to it. I mean, I run into people and, um, and it, they just say, you know, I listen to it on my way in the work or on the train or um, in the car or, I mean, you know, they're folk who are living the life and yeah. tend to be people who are, you know, that know there's something special about this Jesus yeah. and know there's something real there. Mm. Um, the church may or may not always help us get it, but there is something there. Yeah. What would you say to them as a way of kind of, kind of blessing us? What? What would you say to them? I think you're not alone in that people tell me their stories everywhere I go of like, I was raised in the church, but then I left because my mom got divorced and she couldn't take communion or I had to choose between my sexuality and my faith or whatever, Mm -hmm. all of Mm -hmm. these stories. And I've never once, not one time had someone say, well, I was raised in the church, but I left because I just kind of feel like that Jesus guy doesn't have much to offer. Like not once. And so I think just focusing on the main thing is, is, is always the best move. And to go, look, people will disappoint us. Institutions will disappoint us. But this story, this greatest story ever told is not going to disappoint us. Like, and, and just having that focus. I, I mean, I think a lot of times people, people don't leave the church because they don't believe in the gospel anymore. 
people leave the church because they believe in the gospel so much they can't stomach being part of an institution that says it's about it and clearly isn't. And so, um, so, and because of that, I just, I have hope for the church because I think people are still going to gather, like, even if all of our camps close and our colleges aren't around and our pensions aren't as strong or whatever, like all of that fades away. I believe in with everything I have that people will still gather in the name of the triune God and tell the story of the night Jesus was betrayed and hold up bread and break it and say that we do this in remembrance of him and give it to their friends and say, this is broken for you and it's for forgiveness of sins. And like that will happen forever. Like that, that's not going to stop. That's not going to stop. And so because of that, that's where my hope is when it comes to Christianity. My hope is in the fact that this story continues to captivate people and we keep we keep churning it around in our hearts and in our lives and, and looking at it from different angles and it always delivers something new for us. So I just, that's where my hope is. So if people are discouraged because a church has disappointed them or because they can't find a community or whatever, just to kind of go back to the main thing and and know that that doesn't disappoint, you know, hope does not disappoint. So I think that's the main, that's the main thing. Wow. Well, you have just been a pastor to my soul and I got a feeling a whole (laughs) bunch of other souls out there too. Nadia, thank -hmm. you, sister. Thank you. God love you. You too. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you. I hope all of you enjoyed Bishop Curry's conversation with Nadia and the importance of building and maintaining communities centered on grace, being brave and choosing to go first. From now on, I am choosing to share all that I am through my stories to celebrate the good news of Jesus, then inviting others to do the same. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Way of Love with Bishop Michael Curry. If you'd like to learn more about Nadia Bowles-Weber, visit NadiaBowlesWeber.com. That's N-A-D-I-A-B-O-L-Z-W-E-B-E-R.com. You can find links to her books and speaking schedule along with her new podcast, The Confessional. If you'd like to know more about how you can begin the work of going and creating compassionate and honest spaces that take us out of loneliness into community, check out our show notes for resources related to becoming beloved community, racial reconciliation, Episcopal migration ministries, and small groups. And as always, you can learn more about Bishop Curry and the way of love, including how to create your own personal rule of life at episcopalchurch.org. Special thanks this week to Jerusalem Greer, Chris Sekema, Jeremy Tackett, and Scott Van Pletzenrand. I'm Sandy Millian, and I'll see you next time on The Way of Love. The way of Jesus is the way of love, and the way of love can change the world. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information 
along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.